HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Andrew Chenang is a freelance writer and regular contributor to Eater. Dispatched from Hong Kong, his twice-weekly newsletter, Family Meal, covers American food and media, focusing especially as of late on the protests and efficacy of reopenings. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. So for someone who writes for the internet, um, I found that you have a very small and faint digital footprint. Um, You weren't always in Hong Kong, right? That's correct. Yeah, we just moved here uh, two and a half years ago. Okay, so what were you doing before and what, um, what prompted you to move? Um, well, my wife got a job out here basically is the, is the short story, but we'd always, uh, we met overseas and we'd always wanted to, um, raise kids partially overseas, at least a little bit. And, um, in looking for places to do that, Hong Kong was always on the radar because my, my wife's mother has lived out here for 20 years. Um, so when this opportunity came up for my wife and we realized we could move into an apartment in a building that my mother-in-law lived in, uh, it was a perfect place. And we have three kids, one of which was born in Hong Kong. So we have grandparents nearby and it's a, it's a pretty good situation for that this time in our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Real estate definitely is always, I feel like really tricky there. Um, so <laughs> it's really lucky that you found a spot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's not, it's not the easiest place. Uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, so you also haven't always been writing about food or food culture, right? So what were you doing before? Yeah, so I got into this actually um, sort of uh, from the marketing side of things. I worked, um, after various careers, I worked for a, uh, a food tech startup in Washington, D.C. that was doing um, sort of back-of-house ordering for the restaurant industry on an app, of course, and a website. And um, I was their marketing guy. So I was tasked with communicating our product to chefs and restaurateurs and also the supply side and in doing that, I was constantly reading food media and researching food media and, and thinking about who to pitch to and also like, you know, where we could meet um, the restaurant industry on its own level. And eventually I, uh, that company moved to Silicon Valley and I decided to stick around in D.C. And I thought um, there wasn't much space in food media where people were 
where people were talking to the restaurant industry on their own level and where communication was like directed at the restaurant industry. So there were sort of two places. There's like the eater type space, which is very consumer focused and sort of like, hey, here's the cool stuff going on um, with some with a lot of hard news, obviously, and, um, and and some stuff directed at the industry. And then on the trades publication side of things, it was very business oriented and like, you know, here's how to use your Facebook page to get five more people in the door on a Friday night type stuff. But there wasn't anybody sort of melding the two and talking about, you know, the, the fun side of the restaurant industry for the restaurant industry and, and mm-hmm. dishing out the news and sorting through the massive amounts of news that were coming through Eater and the food sections of all the newspapers um, for people in the industry. So that's where Family Meal came from is me trying to fill that void as I saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's funny. Even memoirs that I feel like get at that dishing of the the behind the scenes I still feels very um consumer focused um so so aside from family meal do you feel like there is any other outlet that kind of bridges this gap um there are there are a few other newsletters that are doing um something similar and there are you know there are pieces in places but I don't think there's any publication that's totally dedicated to it there are some publications on the trade side of things that do a great job I, I think plate is a good one um and, uh, you know, I'm going to drop the ball on naming everybody off the top of my head. But um, there are some people that do a good job of, of trying to talk about this stuff. But um, I think a lot of them have to be more serious than I have to be because I'm independent. So I can add humor and I can sort of say whatever I want, um, which is a real advantage when you're trying to talk to people every you know Tuesday and Friday morning um, mm-hmm. to get them to pay attention. Yeah. Do you kind of have a sense of how many of your readers are, you know, in the industry versus consumers? also yeah it's almost entirely industry people i mean i think oh, wow. last time I, I moved to substack a little while ago the the big newsletter well the big newsletter thing of late um but before that i was on a platform that allowed me to, to ask people where they were coming from and at that point i think i was getting like it was almost 80 percent were restaurant industry people um and then another 10 to 15 percent were people who were like ancillary so they didn't work in restaurants but they were like pr or real estate or designers and then um, and then there's food media on top of that and then like the the dregs were consumers now i think i'm seeing a little bit more consumers because i have written for publications that they read like eater the washington post Mm -hmm. and when they see that byline then they they click in and they just want to i think people who read who are not in the industry want to sort of like outside in look they want to see what what people are talking about a little bit Mm -hmm. yeah it feels like newsletters have for a really long time been trash or spam um, but very recently are this in-between medium that a lot of writers are turning to because a lot of the outlets don't serve that need and so what does newsletter ready serve you and your following yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I think for a long time it was trash, and I think there's um, there's still uh, some being put out. Um, but I, I think I think the thing about a newsletter is like, uh, for me, I'm lucky actually right now in in Hong Kong. I can I'm on the opposite end of the time zone, so I can work on something in the later afternoon and hit send, and it gets in everybody's inbox at mm-hmm. like six a.m. New York time, um, and even earlier if you're on the West Coast. So it's something you like wake up, it's in your inbox. Um, there are there are definitely some meteor ones out there. Um, mine is is light hearted and only text and just a very simple scroll, which is intentional because I want people to wake up and be like, oh, hey, there's family meal and like just rip through it real quick, have a laugh and then click on those 
articles that are heavier and more interesting for them. Um, so I think the medium is just, it's, you know, it's like a delivered newspaper. Uh, right now, you don't really get newspapers delivered unless it's a newsletter um, because it's going to come in your email because otherwise you're going to go to the newyorktimes.com or washingtonpost.com or chronicle.com. Um, and you're not getting, you know, it, nothing's hitting your doorstep in the morning the way that a newsletter is at this point. Mm-hmm. And so are you able to do family meal full time or what is your, your day gig, I guess? No, no, no. Yeah. Family meals, not, not full time. Uh, my <laughs> day gig is, uh, yeah, I wish. Um, in fact, actually I was going to, uh, try to ask people to subscribe more often. Um, but <laughs> the world has gone a little topsy turvy and it's not mm-hmm. exactly a great time to ask restaurant people to pony up extra cash. Uh, so I put a little pause on that. Um, but no, my, so my day gig is, uh, I still do a lot of marketing work. I do a lot of writing, um, and consulting for larger companies and, and, um, and startups. I just, I still love to work for startups and, um, yeah, I help them on branding and messaging and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as someone that's now lived and thought a lot about both spaces, Hong Kong and, um, I guess the American food scene, how are you feeling about this kind of eerie duality of so many things that are going on right now? Oh, um, yeah, it's very strange. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, overlap and then, you know, there's a lot of spaces where things are very different. I mean, Hong Kong mm-hmm. is specifically to COVID-19, uh, never closed its restaurants. Um, although people mm-hmm. definitely stayed away. I mean, people were definitely sensitive to, um, to the virus and did not go out, I think for a while, at least not, um, in the numbers that they were before, obviously. Um, but the restaurants were never closed. You could still go and you, there were limits on the number of people at a table and the distance between table. Um, and only bars really closed. So that's very different than, you know, like in New York city where things were mandated shut and everyone had to stay inside. Um, and it's right now Hong Kong and actually for a little while has been very open. Um, I, I, I don't, besides everyone wearing a mask on the street and some subtle differences in restaurants, like, well, now they feel subtle, but obviously at first, like seeing plexiglass everywhere or more distance between tables was a little jarring. Now it seems very normal. Um, but now, yeah, I mean, if you walk down into my neighborhood of Kennedy Town on a regular afternoon, besides everyone wearing a mask, it's a bustling, you know, normal city. So it's really hard to watch what's going on in the U.S. from here and see, you know, not only the shutdown and how difficult that is, but also that the... the stumbles that it seems like um the response is happening across states across county lines you know california going county by county new york um you know having people go out and and not quite know what to do and how to socially Mm -hmm. distance properly and it's it's hard and and sad to watch from here when when you see this city has been able to take care of it and is basically functioning completely normally Mm -hmm. So to confirm, so there's no like stages to reopening like we're having here. It's just always been loosely open. Uh, No, I mean, well, no, because the restrictions put in place um, have loosened. So at first it was it was like 50 percent capacity and four people to a table and one point five meters between every table. Now it's eight people maximum to a group. I don't think there's a capacity limit, but there is 1.5 meters between tables. So it is going a little bit in stages. And bars, because there was an incident um, or a series of incidents in Lan Kwai Fung, which is the very popular nightlife, one very popular nightlife area, sort of clubbing bar district, um, 
bars were shut down for a while and now those are reopened. But everything is, you know, there is a chance that if we had another outbreak that the government would say, all right, we're going back, you know, one stage. Mm-hmm. But, it, right, but it never got to, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just, I was just saying like, because there was no hard closing to things, it feels like then the reopening doesn't feel so jarring. Like I feel like now, um, you know, people are throwing it around, but like the new normal does not feel normal at all. And I don't even know how we'll open again a lot of things. So I I think it's hard to see or to take, I guess, predictions from Hong Kong. But, you know, if there are any lessons we can learn, what are they? Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest lesson is that it will it will eventually go back to normal, whatever that is and whatever you think of normal from before good or bad. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really hard to say what the lessons will be from the, from here. I mean, because the real lessons are you, people need to think about this from a community aspect and, and do what they need to do. Like, you know, people in the States might be a little more nervous about putting their name and phone number down when they go to a restaurant to like, say I was there on this night at this day. So that Mm -hmm. if there was a case later, they can call you up and say, you were in a restaurant with these people, you need to go get tested for COVID. Um, you know, there's a lot of personal freedoms that, that Americans hold dear to that might you know, jar against that idea. Even wearing masks we've seen in the States, people are like, screw that, you know, down to the president. I'm not going to wear a mask because, you know, this is my right to just walk around and do whatever I want. You know, in Hong Kong, when I walk out the door, I forget a mask occasionally. And then I'm like, crap. And the first thing I do is go to the nearest 7-Eleven and buy another pack of masks because it's not even, even though I don't, I know I don't have coronavirus and I know the population hasn't even had a local case in forever or uh, besides tiny little pockets. And my wearing a mask is probably not doing anything. The socially responsible and accepted thing to do is to wear a mask and to show that you are part of this process that's trying to get past this, even though it's a little inconvenient to have to, you know, breathe your own breath every two seconds and, and go buy Seven Eleven and spend another five bucks on a pack of masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how America learns that lesson, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So um, actually, the way I found you and your newsletter was through the Eater Digest um, podcast episode of you when you were talking about the um, the effects of the Hong Kong protests on the restaurant industry. And so now there's, you know, this added layer of pain or hurt on the restaurant industry. And I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a little timeline of how things have elapsed um, or changed at all since. Yeah, I mean, it's been absolutely brutal for the restaurant industry here. Um, the protest began in earnest exactly a year ago, um, basically June, uh, early June of last year, and they um, they shut down the city in a lot of ways, and they changed people's dining habits. In that, you would myself, I know, I would check where the protest going to be today, and if they're going to be in a place where I wanted, I was thinking about going to eat, I wouldn't go out to eat, and people just wouldn't go because the streets would get shut down, um, and uh, the MTR, our, our metro subway stations, would get shut down. Um, and also people are just out protesting, you know, you're not going to a restaurant if you're going to go <laughs> spend hours walking around on the street. Um, maybe you hop into, you know, five guys or McDonald's to get a snack so that you can keep going. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, and, and it lasted until basically until Christmas. Um, there were some big holidays or some big protests right before that. Um, but then we got into the holidays a little bit, things were slowing down the, um, 
well, it's sort of slowing down. Um, the, the bill, the extradition bill that set everything off had been rescinded. Um, people were wondering, um, where the protests would go. A ton of, uh, frontline protesters got arrested at various universities. Um, and so it was sort of in this weird stasis where we thought maybe the protests will fade or maybe it'll enter some new phase. And then suddenly coronavirus hit in January. You know, there started to be rumors. And Hong Kong is obviously very sensitive to any rumors of uh, because of SARS, the, the original SARS, mm-hmm. uh, very sensitive to any sort of rumors about, um, you know, these kind of respiratory illnesses um, coming from China. They knew right away. People here were talking about it right away as if, like, we better watch out. This could be a big deal um, and it could easily come here. So then dining got hit again and people just said, well, OK, the MTR is not shut down, but I'm not necessarily going to go out to eat when I know that there's this crazy respiratory virus that's super contagious running around just like SARS um, and stuff died off. So I had restaurateurs tell me that the protest took off, I forget, like 50 percent, 20 percent. And then this um, and then this tacked on another, you know, 20 percent on top of that. So business just continued to be down for an entire year straight. So we saw a lot of restaurants close, although you don't know what that, you know, you never know what the causality of that is. There's tons of negotiations with landlords. And then, um, you know, people I think are, are hanging on uh, and some are doing okay, but it's been a really, really rough year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So also, what is the status on the protest? Has that also just kind of fizzled out? No. So, uh, well, fizzled out isn't the right term. Um, it's... nobody really knows. I I actually Mm -hmm. sat down to breakfast with a protester um, this week and she was exhausted. um, And she thought that uh, having a lot of arrests, especially from uh, some of the universities in November um, had really killed the movement a little bit, but things have changed now dramatically in Hong Kong that the mainland Chinese government um, in Beijing has inserted new laws into the Hong Kong Constitution, sorry, has promised or passed legislation saying that they will insert new laws into the Hong Kong Constitution that uh, basically limit free speech in certain ways that the city sort of thought was unimaginable, even when the protests were going on. So now I think the, the entire protest movement is, is sort of trying to figure out what the heck to do next. I mean, it's Hong Kong has always, um, not always since 1997, it's had a deadline on its, on its freedoms and its special treatment, uh, which is 2047, which is the Mm -hmm. date that it will revert to mainland rule. And so that was always coming no matter what, but now it's a question of whether or not that's being accelerated to the point that the protests, um, you know, won't, I mean, there's just, there won't, won't be any room for it. Like if you protest, not only could you be charged with rioting in Hong Kong, but maybe there's, you know, more serious crimes and, and who knows what, what would happen to you. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's a, people are really confused and not sure what to do next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so earlier we were talking about how there are these two or many simultaneous issues riddling our world, um, though, they do fork um, very drastically. And so, you know, in in Hong Kong, we have the protests resisting um, mainland rule, but also here with with, um, George Floyd Remembrance protests, um, protests against police brutality. And so I I know it's like hard for you because 
you know, you're not here, you're not feeling it. Um, and it's also difficult to talk about, um, yeah, from that position. And so, again, do you see any correlations at all? Or how are you kind of reconciling these two in your brain? Well, I think, I mean, the hardest thing from here is to watch the police reactions to the protests uh, in, in the U.S. Because I think a lot of people in Hong Kong, um, you know, and around the world, people still occasionally, <laughs> at least a little bit, hold out hope that the U.S. with its, you know, Bill of Rights and strong constitution and, and court system and all this stuff will, will show, even though, you know, a lot of us in the U.S. know that there's aspects of that that are, are a little bit Pollyannish and fairy tale you know, people still hope that there'll be something to look up to. And I think immediately the Chinese government can look, the mainland Chinese government can look right away at the way that the police are reacting and the way that the president is discussing these protests and just say, yeah, well, so what's your problem with how we're doing it over here? Um, and I think that's been just the hardest, the hardest part to watch um, from over here. The correlation is that, you know, over here people are constantly saying that the police overreacted and that there's been a really heavy handed response to mostly peaceful protests. Um, and that the, the, the only reason protests that were peaceful turned not peaceful is because of that heavy handed response. And then you look to the U S and you see, you know, police assaulting journalists and, um, the president gassing his way to a church to make a statement. And you just think to yourself, well, you know, <laughs> what, what example are we setting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is meant to be non Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And we're back. Um, so, yeah, we were just talking about your kind of unique um, writer in exile position. And so, um, how do you see coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement failing? Um, or do you hold out hope? Do you th- feel like things are kind of better or different this time? Ooh, yeah, that's a hard one. I'm, I mean, I try not to be so cynical. I really want to be really hopeful. Um, but I already... I don't want to say I feel it fading. I guess I'm not there, so I don't really know. I mean, I know that the protests have... Um, been sustained and that people are in the streets and that places like, and again, I'm not there, so this, I don't have all the accurate information, but that places like Minneapolis are talking about ways to reconfigure their police departments and that, um, there are higher level discussions, you know, in, in political world about, about how to, um, how to better manage the, the police situation. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just really hard. I mean, as everyone is saying, um, or at least the people that I'm trying to follow and read is, you know, this is systemic and it's just, it's going to be really hard to improve on something that is so incredibly ingrained. And on the food media side, I think people are, you know, people are trying to think about how, how we can adjust the power structures in food media 
And I think that's really, really hard. I mean, as much as people like, I think um, somebody sent me Sam Sifton's newsletter the other day where he, uh, for New York Times cooking, where he sent out something saying like, you know, we're looking at things and, and basically it sort of implied that maybe they'd make some hires or something um, hmm. from, for people of color. But I don't know. I mean, like a lot of people are also saying like, you know, just a hire or two isn't enough. We need, mm-hmm. we need an editor. Um, we need, we need assigning positions. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm trying to be hopeful. Um, I'm a little cynical and, and the, the world has beat me down a little bit over these last couple of years, but uh, we'll see. I think it just remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, as you said, it's, it's so difficult already um, just in our relations with each other. But on top of that, we have, you know, all this PR surrounding it. There's, as you say, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad PR and it's mostly bad now, now um, nowadays. And, your latest newsletter includes a whole section devoted to this um, on word choice. And so can you talk a bit about why word choice is especially important right now? Um, Yeah. (coughs) Sorry. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, and so in my newsletter, I mentioned uh, there was a piece in the LA Times that uh, was not in the food section and the food editor, Peter Meehan, immediately was like, uh, we didn't publish this. We didn't know it was coming out. Um, but it was Nancy uh, Silverton and her uh, partner, Michael Krikorian, and they wrote about the protests and the, some of the looting that happened to some of their restaurants in Los Angeles. And, you know, I think I've read some of Michael Krikorian's stuff. It's usually pretty tongue-in-cheek dad joke stuff. Um, and he, in his piece, trying to write about the uh, looting that was happening in the store, he made some offhand comments. Like he said, um, you remember the coronavirus, right? That Wuhan, Wuhan, China bat thing. Um, and then he also referred to the looters as uh, roaches at one point. And I just think, you know, <laughs> the thing about it is the Wuhan, China bat thing, those are probably things that do come to people's mind when they think mm-hmm. about um, the coronavirus. Like it did first come to our attention in Wuhan, China, and it probably came in some way from a bat, although the reason people remember that is probably not um, accurate. But I think, you know, Tejal Rao from the New York Times immediately t- tweeted out about it and was just like, yeah, I remember that. That's the kind of flippant talk that had so many random people assaulting Asian Americans on the streets mm-hmm. and Asians yeah. on the streets in the U.S. And so it's just, you, there's so much nuance that gets lost um and that in some ways it's sad that we can't discuss um but racism you know sometimes it just has to be hit with a big solid object and it can't you can't um you can't try to you, i don't know how to say it but you, you've got to be careful um when you're trying to insert nuance or, or i mean he wasn't trying to insert nuance but when you're just throwing out words you really have to think about it from a much larger perspective and it's it's just something we all need to be super careful with uh, especially Mm -hmm. at a time like this when when the country is trying to deal with it directly Mm -hmm. yeah speaking of um actions that kind of fail or fail to have nuance um i feel like you and i had a very similar reaction um confusion slash ickiness feeling um with all the the black screens littering um social media i just feel like how how would you justify that working? Like, I I just, 
so many brands that I, you know, respect and admire, like I, I realize they're in a very sticky position and they have to, you know, say something and they should, you know, say the right thing. But I think a lot of them don't know how. And so just thought a black screen might fix the problem. And so, yeah, I'm just eager to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't participate in that right away because I, I, I didn't participate in it at all. But when I first started seeing it happening, I was like, mm, I want to, I'm not going to, I need to think about this for a second. I'm not sure what's going on here. Um, and uh, that sort of, that paid off a little bit. I mean, in a, in a, again, a cynical sense, because eventually it came around that people were sort of tagging it wrong. And it was a, it was a frustrating point for some people in the movement. And I, yeah, I don't know. It's a really hard thing for brands. Um I mean, not anywhere near as hard as what everyone else has to deal with, but Mm -hmm. they do, um, they just, they can't, uh, it's it's hard to say exactly how to say, but they they want to participate, but they're also just brands. I mean, I don't know, for me, I'm like, again, it's like a systemic thing. So for you, if you're a brand, you can't make a statement about it. Like you need to be able to look back at your business and point to it and say, yeah, no, we get it because we're living these values. Or you need to like actually look back at your business and say, oh, we really need to live these values and these are concrete steps we're going to do. And they have to be real concrete steps. But So people are going to call you out if you're, you know, I don't know, I can't think of a brand that's awful right now off the top of my head. I mean, I can think of many, but I don't know who to single out. <laughs> but if you're, if you're a brand and you're like, okay, yeah, we, you know, we pay barely minimum wage and we have, you know, exploited all these different people and all this stuff. And, but yes, but when this, when one man died in police custody, uh, we put up a black square for a week and now please moving on everybody tap us on the shoulder and say, that's great. And then we, you know, send another check our way. It's just not going to work. I mean, I don't know. The honest truth is I don't know if it's not going to work because I live in a world, uh, my own little bubble of people who I think are hopefully smart people that I try to follow and that I talk to and listen to, and they will call it out. But in the larger scheme of things, in the place where, you know, an average American is looking at it and saying like, yeah, that's great. Like, thanks Pepsi for, you know, having, what's her name offer a police officer a Coke. I don't know. I don't know if that did sales drop or did they go up? I don't know what the numbers say, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it, it was an attempt. Um, also, as you said, from the newsletter, it was an attempt for, um, or by white leaders to, make a statement that was supposed to not be about them, but it, you know, was very much about them. Um, so, so how do you think, or how would you advise um, these leaders to have, you know, taken a different course of action? Yeah. You know, I mean, like I, I, again, like I, I don't think there is a simple mm-hmm. PR solution. I mean, I could be very cynical and give you what I think are like, <laughs> like easy outs or like ways to like, I don't know. I don't know what it's not greenwashing or I mean, I don't want to say blackwashing. I don't know if that's a a thing, but like, I I think there's an easy, there are some probably easy outs they could have, but I mean, the real thing is you, you got to do the work. I mean, you got to go back and look at your company and say like, all right, this is what America is saying right now. These are the massive issues and what, what is actually going on in our company. And then you have to make the case to your board and to your investors that like, if you were to follow these concrete steps, it would work and you could, you know, investors would see value. Um, in, and maybe that's not as simple as the, the direct bottom line. Maybe it's more like a really long-term thing where you're like, look, if we did all this work, then this community would be better served and they'd have more money and they'd want to buy our stuff. I don't, I mean, that that's like much longer term than just like, 
you know, if we hire one person in this mm-hmm. position, we can, we can promote it and then maybe, you know, we'll get a boost in temporary sales. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you just got to do the work. You got to do the real work. There's no, there's no easy out on this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To wrap, let's, let's bring it back to um, the hospitality industry, which I feel like has been so especially challenged as of late um, with the pandemic. It was, it's kind of proof that those in the industry are not so shown the, the same kind of ch- kindness or generosity that they, you know, give their communities. And so in your reporting um, and interviewing of restaurant owners and bar owners, how have you seen their understanding um, or relationship to hospitality change? Um, sorry, you mean oh, in the in the current situation? Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I think, I don't know. I can't, I, I just, I read these stories that say that uh, restaurants are donating X or like, you know, supporting the protests in X way. And I just, I'm sort of shocked. I mean, these guys are so broke. Everyone is so broke. Mm-hmm. The, the restaurants yeah. have no money. They haven't been open in months. And then they're opening up and they're trying to like hand out water or like, you know, do, do whatever. Um so I, I don't I'm honestly, I'm just floored every time I see that the restaurant industry is giving money to a, to a cause right now. Like, I mean, I think they would. I mean, the restaurant industry is obviously a huge fundraiser, either on their own or through or like in facilitating funds for other people, uh, fundraisers for other people. But I, I just it just shocks me that they're doing this right now. I think an interesting thing is that um, it'll be interesting to see whether or not their support sticks. So in, uh, sticks with, um, their guests and consumers, because Hmm. in Hong Kong, um, during the protests, restaurants that supported protesters to, to the extent that like, even like in, in, you know, New York and DC where, um, you know, a restaurant would open its doors and some protesters could run in so that they don't get arrested after curfew or whatever, or, um, or they have bottled water on site that they're giving out or, or they're handing out meals in the case of, um, uh, what's his name? Jose Andres or something like that. Um, those restaurants got on a map and then we still, people still use the map. It's a, it's a map that's got yellow restaurants, which are pro protester and blue restaurants, which are pro, um, police and pro government. And I talk to people even now who, uh, who really rely on that map and they won't go anywhere unless it's a yellow restaurant. Um, and some people don't like it. I mean, I talked to an owner of a yellow restaurant the other day and she's grateful for the business, but she's also feels like it's a very divisive way. And she's nervous that it's dividing Hong Kong, um, literally along, along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. but it'll, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens, you know, what kind of long-term response restaurants see out of this, um, opening their doors and giving when most of them have, you know, absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for joining me today, Andrew. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Coral. I really appreciate it. Yeah, how can listeners find your newsletter? Uh, the newsletter is familymeal.substack.com. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at this family meal. Great, thank you. Thanks so much. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.